Good morning, church. Time flies. In the blink of an eye, we are already in December, and this is the second week of our Advent season. We will kickstart our Advent sermon series today, Emmanuel, the coming of grace. Advent season is always a period of time for us to prepare ourselves to remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas as well as for the second coming of Christ. So beside partying, <laughs> we remember to spend some time, quiet time to slow down, to reflect on what is the true meaning of Christmas. And so this sermon series will bring us through the genealogy of Jesus, which is the passage that we will look at today. And next week, the incarnation of Jesus, the week after, the timeless wisdom of God. And on Christmas weekend, Emmanuel, the coming of grace. We hope that through this sermon series, we will get to revisit the gospel story throughout this whole season so that we can truly grapple with what is the true meaning of Christmas. What does it mean to us when Jesus is born 2,000 years ago? So may the Lord speak to us afresh about His great love for each and every one of us this season, this special season, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather for a time of corporate worship. We just want to commit ourselves and this time into your hand that may you speak to every one of us in a specific way that is receptive to us, O oh Lord. Touch our heart so that our heart can be uh, comforted, can be reminded of your great love for each and every one of us. Speak to us afresh, O oh Lord. Just commit ourselves into your hand. May you be glorified, your church be edified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the son of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Oh, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of... Wow. Mm, all names. Wait. Ah, verse 17. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. What just happened? Anyone read through the Gospel of Matthew this way? Or is it just me? Anyone? <laughs> Usually when we see a series of names, a long list of names, we don't need to be told. We will automatically fast forward, right? Skip, skip, and skip, and skip, skip, and reach. And, oh, real meat is here. Verse 17. Thus, that's the conclusion of who thing that informs us what is the passage about. But this is not so for the Israelites. Genealogies were important to the Israelites because genealogies proved a person's identity as a Jew. They used genealogy to determine where a person lived because each Jewish tribe has received a land inheritance in the Israel, right? For a person to inherit a particular land, he has to prove that he is from that tribe and therefore can get that land. And genealogies also determine whether a person can serve as priest or not, because only the Levite and the Levites and the Aaron, uh, descendants of Aaron can serve as priests. And more importantly, the genealogy is used to trace the promised Messiah's arrival, the promise of it. So Israel waited and hoped for Messiah to come, to conquer their oppressors, to restore the, the throne of David but there was 400 years of silence after the last books of the Old Testament were written. No new prophets were raised. 
God revealed nothing new to them during this period. So the moment when Matthew started his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, it became the perfect bridge linking the Old Testament to the New. This is the reason why the Gospel of Matthew is being placed as the first book of the whole New Testament, followed right after the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Let us now, are you ready? We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word, the great word translated genealogy in verse 1 is actually Genesis, which means beginning. While Genesis of the Old Testament gives us a story of one beginning, talking about God's creation and covenant relations with Israel, Matthew gives us a new beginning in the New Testament that is about the, the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, the Kingdom of God. So, names here. Verse 2. It will be a test of our attention span. All right? <laughs> Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Neshon. Neshon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shaltiel. Shaltiel, the father of Jerubabel. Jerubabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azar, Azar, the father of Zetok, Zetok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Nathan, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. Whew, I see somebody found. Don't clap. Is everyone still with me? You all clap with me. They all go through together with me. Not me reading alone, right? I hope. <laughs> when I was figuring out my own family tree a few years back, I found out that this, my grandma was related to this guy. His name is Yap Aloy. I'm not sure whether you know him. He was a leader of the Chinese community in Kuala Lumpur back in the 1800s, who was actually responsible for the development of the city of commercial and mining center. My grandma was his niece. And it's just a surprise to me. I studied this person's life in my history textbook during my secondary school time. So when I was tracing my own family line, I get to discover something new about my family. So today, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we will discover God entered 
our human history through the birth of Jesus so that all nations can be saved through Him. In the genealogy of Jesus informs us that about the humanity of Jesus. It tells us that Jesus was not a fictional character. He was a real person with parents, grandparents, and relatives just as we do. When I was figuring out my own family tree, I tended to be inclusive. I wanted to make sure that, okay, make sure I include everyone, everyone in my family in that genealogy. But for the Jews, they listed names in their genealogies selectively. In other words, they did not include every single name like we do. Instead, they highlighted the most important names to, to list the grandfathers, the great-grandfather, or even ancestor. And therefore, the word father used in the ancient world does not always refer to their biological father. It could refer to grandfather, great-grandfather, or even ancestor. When you trace back, you go back to verse 1, you can see that Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. But they were not, right? In the common pattern that we see in genealogies is X, the father of Y. But as we read through the genealogy just now, did you actually realize that there were moments where this pattern is broken by the mention of mothers? Do you notice? Anyone notice? I hope you all notice. Yes, thank you. Right? There were five of them. There are Tamar in verse, verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, the wife of Uriah in verse 6, and then Mary in verse 16. Something more striking is the absence of the father language when Joseph is being listed in the genealogy. Verse 16, it says that, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. The father language is missing here for Joseph. It's because Matthew wanted to make it clear that Joseph was not Jesus' birth father. He was not Jesus' biological father. However, he still played a very significant role in the family lineage of Jesus because of this relationship, adoptive relationship between Joseph and Jesus. Because of this, that Jesus became the legitimate heir to the throne of David. Because according to the Palestinian law, the head of the family was no less the father of his adopted children than those children that he had procreated. So even though Joseph was Jesus' adopted father, adopted son, adopted father, yes. <laughs> so Joseph was still Jesus' legal father in that, word, in that way. But my question is, how can Jesus be God and man? The Bible teaches us that Jesus is not merely someone who is a lot, a lot like God or someone who has a close walk with God. The Bible says Jesus is God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, Paul talks about Jesus' humility. He says, Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on cross. So Jesus is God who took on the form of human likeness. Another question that we'll ask is, so did Jesus stop being God when he became a human? J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he answers, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Christ was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus 
all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. So while Jesus is fully man, he did not give up any divine attributes when he was born. Colossians 2.9, Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So Jesus lived on earth just as we do. He became weary, thirsty, hungry, and he experienced the full range of human emotions such as amazement, sorrows, and etc. But the only, only difference is he does not have a sinful nature like we do. He did not commit any sin even though he was tempted in all ways. And this is the reason why Jesus can empathize with us as human beings. In my recent trip to Korea, I had some problems with my suitcase. I wanted to unlock it after I checked into my Airbnb, but I could not open it. What happened? What went wrong? After a few minutes of trying, we finally opened. It was a relief. If not, I'm going to buy everything. I cannot crack open my luggage, or maybe I can. But what went wrong? I realized that the passcode to my suitcase somehow shifted by one digit from 980 changed to 981. I didn't know how, how did that happen, okay? So on the day when I was flying back to Singapore, I thought I wanted to have a light and easy day. So I stuffed everything into my luggage, everything in the suitcase, including my backpack, my computer, and everything else. So on the day when I arrived at the airport two hours before the flight, I thought I have sufficient time. But I could not open my luggage again. I cannot open my suitcase. What am I going to do? Is my passcode now 980 or 981? Or it changed again? I have no idea. If I cannot open my luggage, how am I going to retrieve my computer? Because if you're going to check in my luggage, I need to retrieve my computer. If I carry my luggage together with me on, on board, when I go through the security, I need to take out my computer. Cannot open suitcase. How? What is going to happen? I was frantic. Just when I decided to give up, it just dawned on me that my passcode, I entered it in the wrong direction. 981, top to bottom. I entered 981, bottom up. I was like champion. Wow, it was another bigger relief. You know, just like every other number lock can only be unlocked by that particular preset code, there is also only one way for us to unlock the atonement for our sins. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. Why? Because the justice of God requires that same human nature pay for, for those who have sinned. Pay for the one who have sinned. But we cannot pay for ourselves because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. We cannot pay for ourselves. We cannot pay for others. Only Jesus, the one who is without sin, can pay for our sin. And at the same time, only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God and secure for us the true, righteous, true righteousness and life because Jesus is God. Jesus is the one and only perfect sacrifice who can unlock the atonement of our sins at the same time satisfy the wrath of God because Jesus is fully God, fully man. This is something mysterious, mystery that we cannot fully understand. How can it be? But that it is. That's the way. Genealogy of Jesus also reflected to us 
the sovereign hand of God who had been faithfully working out his redemptive plan throughout human history. Matthew divided his genealogy into three portions. The first portion is a heading, the first verse. The second portion is a bigger chunk. Three sets of 14 generations. Abraham to David, David to exile, exile to Christ. And the third portion is a final verse, a conclusion at verse 17. And to be honest, I had a very hard time counting the names. How many of you ever counting the, counted the names? Like, why? Wow, are you sure or not? I got 14, I got 14. Anyone? <laughs> I counted multiple times, but I couldn't make sense of it because no matter how many times I count, I cannot get this. 14 generations for each set because count and count and count and count. I only get the second set is the 14 full generations. You can try. Huh? Let's... let's Look at it. Okay, let me try to explain. The first set, Abraham to David, it has 13 names. It has 14 names if we include King David, the blue color one, right? Two names form one generation, correct? One name and another name, one generation. So 14 names form how many generations? 13 generations, right? One, two, one generation. Two, three, another generation. So you go and count, huh? <laughs> 14 names is 13 generations. So where does the 14th generation come from? I was like a bit, a bit worried, like anxious, like how am I going to preach this if I cannot make, uh, make the counting straight and correct? So after I read some commentaries, phew, I found some commentaries, give me some sound explanation. It says that we assume that Matthew is actually counting Abraham, the generation leading up to Abraham as one generation. So the person before Abraham, the name is not there, but that generation is included. So that makes up 14 generations. And I love the second set because it has 15 names, it's perfect, 14 generation. And the third set is the same thing. Third set, if we, if we include Jesus in that whole set, we have 14 names. So 13 generations. The 14th generation has to come from Jeconiah and the, lead, the generation leading up to Jeconiah, the first name. Right? If you're confused, it's okay. We can discuss together. I, I have counted one time. I make sense of it already, right? I, I put aside the Bible and come back the, the, the next day when I look at a passage again. How did I arrive in this conclusion? I, I forgot. So, yeah, equally confused. But now, today, I'm clear. Today, I'm clear. Thank God. Right? <laughs> so, we can discuss together. So, when we look at the genealogy on the surface, it's actually really a record of one birth after another. Nothing interesting. But when we look intently, paying attention to the details, the genealogy actually discloses that God has been working within history to achieve four ordained purposes, that Jesus, the last person of the last epoch, the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel and the beginning of a new messianic age. When Matthew introduced Jesus as the son of David and son of Abraham, he actually linked Jesus to the great pro two great promises to Israel. The redemptive plan of God was foreshadowed by these promises of a son God made to David and Abraham. We'll do a little survey here. Second Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that he will raise up David's offspring to establish the kingdom of of his throne forever. Verses 12 to 4a, 
when your days are over and you rest with your ancestor, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. We know that this promise has its immediate fulfillment in the coronation of Solomon. You can go and flip your Bible, recorded in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. But when we look at the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, when the author talks about the superiority of Jesus, he says that for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Sounds familiar? In this verse, the author of the book of Hebrews applies the prophecy of 2 Samuel to Jesus, saying that Jesus is not merely the son of David, but as the son of God. And to Abraham, God has also made a promise of son that through, through his seed, all the nations of the earth shall gain blessing. We know that this promised son of Abraham was Isaac, right? A miracle baby born of Sarah's barrenness in her old age. But when we look at the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul pointed out clearly that Jesus Christ is that promised seed. So both David and Abraham were promised a son. The birth of Isaac, the miracle baby, the birth of Solomon, God's beloved, both have been superseded by the birth of Jesus, whose conception is even more miraculous and he himself is a beloved son of God. But when, but the time, the set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. At that appointed time, God stepped in to our human history with the birth of his own son. As I reflected on my own conversion story, I'm always amazed by the fact that God started to work in my lives long before, way before I realized it. I came to know Christ through my piano teacher in 2003. And I started learning piano with this teacher in 1990. 1990. Yes, 1990. She wasn't a Christian then, you know. She wasn't a Christian then. So it just... This is interesting to see how God weaved people together into his salvation story. And in 1997, then my piano teacher became a Christian. And after that, he shared, she shared gospel with me. And that's how I got to know Christ. But when I first heard the gospel story, that was the time when my sister saying that she, she converted to Muslim, to Islam. So I just conveniently using the excuse saying that, hey, I do not want another new religion to be added to my family. It will be too chaotic. But deep down in my heart, actually I was thinking, I don't need a God. I am God. My, my life is in my hands. I don't need someone to tell me how to live my life. Only after five years later, five years later, through a series of unfortunate, unhappy uh, happenings in my life that made me realize that Wow, I don't have control over my life. So since I cannot control my life, then I, have, I need to have someone who can reign over my life, who can tell me how to live my lives. And that's how it made me and led me to the reality and accepting the reality that there is a God and this God is the one who has created me. 
So God knew us before we were born. But at the right time, He stepped into our lives, ushered us into His saving grace. I'm sure every one of you have experienced that. He brought things into completion according to His will in His time. A theologian concludes this way. He says that the genealogy is an impressive witness to Matthew's conviction that the birth of Jesus was not unpremeditated accident, but occurred in the fullness of time and the providence of God who overruled the generations to this end, to inaugurate, it, to inaugurate in Jesus a new order, the time of fulfillment. God entered our human story through the birth of Jesus so that all nations can be saved through him to Jews. This is the new order which Christ has inaugurated. Jesus, the son of David, will not reign over a kingdom of Israel, but he will have all authority in heaven and earth. His eternal throne of glory will be that inglorious cross. He will take away the sins of his people and his kingdom shall include men and women of all nations. In nothing extraordinary, a winning essay from 2019 Personal Narrative Contest for Students organized by New York Times, Jennifer Kim writes about a moment when she felt ashamed of her mother and what she learned about herself from it. This is her story. She said, It was a Saturday. Whether it was sunny or cloudy, hot or cold, I cannot remember. But I can remember it was a Saturday because the mall was packed with people. I was with mom. Mom is short, skinny. It's easy to overlook her in the crowd simply because she is nothing extraordinary to see. On the day we strolled down the slippery slicked house with soft inconspicuous steps, peeking at the window boutiques in fleeting glances because we both knew we wouldn't be buying much. Like always, I remember I was looking up at the people we passed by as we walked. At first, apathetically, but then more attentively. Wow, ladies wore five-inch shoes that clicked importantly on the floor and bright, elaborate clothing. Men strode by, smelling of sharp cologne, faces clear of wrinkles wiped away with expensive creams. An uneasy feeling started to settle in my chest. I tried to push it out, but once it took root, it refused to be yanked up and tossed away. It got more unbearable with every second until I could deny it no longer. I was ashamed of my mother. We were in a high-class neighbourhood. I knew that. We lived in a small, overpriced apartment building that hung on the edge of a county that mom chose to move to because she knew the schools were good. We were in a high-class neighbourhood. But as, as I scrutinised the passers-by and then turned accusing eyes on mom, I realised for the first time that we did not belong there. I could see the heavy lines around mom's eyes and mouth etched deep into her skin without luxurious lotions to ease them away. She wore cheap ragged clothes with the seams torn, shoes with the soles worn down. Her eyes were tired from working long hours to make ends meet. 
and her hair just too grey for her age. I looked at her and I was ashamed. My mother is nothing extraordinary, yet at that moment she stood out because she was just so plain. Friends, as we look back at our own family history or even ourselves, our lives, I'm sure there were moments when we felt embarrassed, ashamed of something, someone, or perhaps most of the time, ourselves. But the genealogy of Jesus tells us that that is okay. There's no big deal. Why? Because it did not take a perfect family history to bring about the Messiah. When we look at the genealogy of Jesus, there is no pattern of righteousness we can trace. We can find adulterers, harlots, heroes, Gentiles. There are good kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat. There's also a wicked king in the line, family line of Jesus, Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoram. And if God, if God could work through the generations, both good and evil, to bring about His purposes, He can work through ours, regardless who we are, where we are from. And this points us to the universality of God's saving grace reflected in the genealogy of Jesus, where Matthew especially includes these women into it. This must have stunned Matthew's readers because women were not normally included in a genealogy. Not, no woman, not even Mary, were, appears in the genealogy of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. You can go and check it out. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Not even Mary was listed. But Matthew listed five of them. What is even more surprising is the fact that these women were not the great matriarchs of Israel. Tamar, when Judah failed to provide a husband for her in accordance to the Israelite custom, she took matters into her hands, posing as a prostitute to trick Judah and conceive twin sons. Genesis 38. Rahab was a prostitute. However, she acquired favour by sheltering the spies sent out by Joshua. Ruth was from the cursed race of Moab, stemming from Lot's incest with his daughter. Moses decreed that no Ammonite and Moabite may enter the assembly of Israel. Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, who is identified only as wife, wife of Uriah. The name Uriah, a Hittite, dredges up the tawdry story of David's adultery and death-dealing recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. The inclusion of these women reveals the universality of God's saving grace, telling us that even the family tree of Messiah transcends national limits. Gentiles have been grafted into the Davidic line. But these are not just any Gentiles. Their story revealed to us that there were pious Gentiles who feared God. Look at Judah. Must confess, Judah must confess in the end, that Tamar is more righteous than her, than him. Rahab trusted the pledge of the spies to protect her and her family. Ruth looked for a husband in accordance with the Jewish custom and sought to provide for her Jewish mother-in-law. Uriah the Hittite refused to violate the taboos regarding those consecrated war and was more righteous than King David, who, is committed, who has committed adultery and eventually murdered 
Uriah. So these stories behind the names tells us that they were not just any Gentiles. They were the pious Gentiles who fear God. So friends, what can we learn from this genealogy of Jesus? We see God's heart. He entered our human history through the birth of Jesus so that all nations can be saved through Him. And this is the reason Christ was born 2,000 years ago. God's saving grace is for you and me and no one is too far gone. Everyone can be included to the family of God when we turn to Jesus. It did not need a perfect family for God to bring about a Messiah. It did not need, it doesn't need a perfect family for God to bring about the Messiah. Similarly, it does not need a perfect family for the saving grace of God to flow through, flow into your life and flow through your family's life. By His saving grace, she can overturn our imperfection, our past, present and future for His glory. And today, in this Christmas season, as I shared this message to you, this is God's heartbeat that He wants to enter into your life, your story, through Jesus, so that you, particularly you, can be saved. And through you, your family can be saved. And this Christmas season, let us recommit ourselves to God once again, that we will receive Him, we will welcome Him to come into our life, to make a difference, to make a change for His glory. Will you let Him reign over your life, your stories, past, present and future, as you continue to grow and mature in His grace? Say a prayer to God as you respond to His word.